The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. What a God we have and what promises He gives. Praise Him for that. Let's pray as we begin here. Lord, we thank you that no matter what we're facing in life, no matter what storms or trials might come our way, Lord, you give us promise after promise in your word about your faithfulness, about your all-sufficient grace. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to look not to ourselves and our own wisdom and our own strength, but to you, God, you alone. And it's to you that we look this morning as we turn our attention more to Isaiah chapter 60 and continue our passage by passage journey through the book of Isaiah. Lord, I pray that you would show us everything you want us to see in this passage and change us in every way you want us to be changed, Lord. Please, God, open our eyes, open our hearts and speak, Lord, because we're listening to you, Lord. We want to hear from you this morning, Lord. I've got notes, I've got some things I want to share, but God, we really just want to hear from you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's been a lot of talk in recent months about a cultural phenomenon often referred to as cancel culture, right? Uh, we hear about actresses getting canceled and authors getting canceled and even entire corporations, at least supposedly, being canceled. Uh, honestly, the list is growing so big, it's getting a little bit difficult for a simple guy like me to keep track of who's supposedly been canceled and who hasn't. And the reason I bring this up is because I imagine that a lot of people in the ancient world uh, must have been wondering whether Israel as a nation had effectively been canceled or not in their exile. The Bible records that because the Israelites were so rebellious, God sent the Babylonians to conquer their capital city of Jerusalem and burn it to the ground and carry off the vast majority of the Israelites into exile, scattering them throughout the Babylonian empire. And I imagine that many in that region of the world were wondering whether all of these tiny communities of Israelites scattered throughout the vast Babylonian empire would even survive. Wasn't it inevitable that as time went on, the Israelites would intermarry with others in the empire and that gradually their culture and their distinct cultural and ethnic identity would erode to the point that they would effectively uh, cease to be a recognizable group of people eventually? I mean, wasn't it inevitable that in a manner of speaking, they would be canceled? Yet the main passage of scripture that we're looking at today and that Janet so read so well 
Isaiah chapter 60 gives us a very clear answer to that question. Uh, Through the prophet Isaiah, God assures his people that they won't just survive this ordeal, but that they'll actually thrive on the other side of it. In fact, God says that the land and people of Israel will become the most exalted land and people in the entire world. Just look what God says to his people, again, in verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So the main thrust of these verses, and actually of the entire chapter, is that God will be the glory of his people for the blessing of the world. That's the main idea of this passage, that God will be the glory of his people for the blessing of the world. Now, of course, there was nothing glorious about God's people in their current condition as they were scattered in exile throughout the land of Babylon. Yet God says there's going to be a radical reversal in the fortunes of his people. Instead of being despised, They'll be exalted. By the way, what a great reminder that we serve a God who offers hope to the hopeless. No matter how dismal their circumstances might be, no matter how dismal your circumstances might be this morning, there's hope to be found in God. What a great reminder here. And as we look at what God says to his people in these first three verses, he says that that hope will come in the form of his glory actually shining from within them. He says, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. By the way, God's glory here simply refers to his majesty or his splendor. The word glory in its most literal usage Uh, means primarily weight. Uh, To say that something's glorious literally means that it's weighty. It's something significant and substantial. So for God to be glorious means that he's a pretty big deal. And notice in this verse that it's not just that God's glory shines upon his people. No, he actually shines upon them in such a way that they, in turn, shine with the light of his glory. Kind of like the moon at night shines, not with its own light, but with the light of the sun. And even so, God says that his people will shine with the light of his glory. And in fact, he commands them to shine. He says, arise, shine, for your light has come. He's calling them to actively display his glory to the world. And then in verse 2, we see why. Uh, The word for at the beginning of the verse signals to us that what follows is an explanation of what's just been said in verse 1. A reason why we should do what we've just been told to do. 
It says, for behold, darkness should cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. So we see that darkness is covering the earth. What does that darkness involve? Well, first, I believe it simply is metaphorical for the, the fact that people are deceived and devoid of the truth. Also, people are in dar darkness in that they're broken in their sin and in the misery that sin brings. And finally, people are just generally lacking in the only thing and the only one who truly satisfies. Darkness covers the earth. Yet God's people, they know him and they have him. Therefore, as verse three says, nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And it's hard to read all of these verses about God's people shining with the light of his glory without being reminded of what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter five. Quite possibly with Isaiah 60 in his mind as he's saying it. In Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus adopts this metaphor of light and tells his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So just as God tells his people back in our main passage to shine, even so Jesus tells his disciples here in Matthew chapter five to let your light shine. And that's what we as a church wanna do, right? We want to shine with the light of Christ. Jesus compares his disciples to a city set on a hill. You know, I've often said that, I think more than anything else, is our vision for this church. To be a city on a hill that's markedly distinct from the world around us. And yet that's at the same time irresistibly attractive to the world as well. And not only is being a city on a hill our church's vision, it's also our strategy for how we want to reach out and to make an impact. Our strategy is people. Our strategy isn't some kind of a slick marketing program, although I, we certainly wanna get our name out in the community. Our strategy isn't offering people some kind of a carefully crafted, uh, crafted worship experience, as it's often called on Sunday mornings, that attracts people because it's, it's just so well produced. Although we certainly do hope that what we do on Sunday mornings is a meaningful thing. And, I feel like I have to say this one, our strategy isn't even having a, a nice building that, that attracts people or as the primary thing that attracts them. Uh, although we certainly do hope to have a nice building. In fact, we're putting most of, of the money that we have for renovations into the guest welcome center 
right? Because we want to have a nice space that we can show people love and care and hospitality that's really important to us. And so we're investing our money accordingly. But even having a super nice guest welcome center isn't really our strategy, or at least not a core component of it. No, our main strategy is people. Having a church filled with people who have been radically changed by the gospel and are living lives that are radiant with the glory of Christ, shining with his light. That's what we're counting on to make us attractive in the eyes of the world. Are our lives radiant with a joy that rises above our circumstances? Do we exhibit authentic humility in all of our interactions with other people? Do we demonstrate love even toward those who treat us poorly? Praying for them. Serving them. Just genuinely caring for them. These are the kinds of things I'm referring to when I talk about us being a city on a hill that shines brightly with the light of Christ for the world to see. That is our strategy for making an impact on this world. And the nice thing about that strategy is that it never goes out of style. We don't have to constantly rethink or reinvent it every few years. It also isn't undermined by a pandemic. Um, you know, I appreciate John MacArthur's recent observations uh, about churches that rely on entertainment to get people in the doors. That just doesn't really work during a pandemic. It also doesn't work when the culture becomes hostile toward Christianity. The more hostile American culture comes, uh, becomes toward Christianity, the less likely people will be to come to church to be entertained. And yet even in that kind of hostile environment, we can make a real impact on people by being a city on a hill and living lives that are radiant with the glory of Christ. So this strategy is one that's both pandemic-proof and persecution-proof. You can't cancel supernatural joy. You can't cancel Christ-like love. You can't cancel God's people living lives that are radiant with His glory. And going back to our main passage in Isaiah 60, this is what it means for the glory of the Lord to rise upon us and for us to shine with the light of his glory. And as a re the result of this, as we saw in verse three, is that the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. When God's people shine with his glory, it will make an impact. Then as we continue in the passage, we see what exactly it'll look like for the nations of the world to come to Israel in this way. 
because even though we've been applying all of this to the church, we still have to remember that this was originally written about Israel. So what will it look like for the nations to come to Israel? Well, verses four through 18 tell us. And since we already read these verses earlier in the service, I'll just summarize them pretty briefly and point out a few highlights here. In verse four, God says, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on a hip. Now, when this verse talks about Israel's sons and daughters, it's not just talking about the ethnic Israelites who were scattered in exile. It's talking about people from all over the world who see God's glory in Israel and are so captivated by him that they want to come and devote themselves to the worship of this true God. They were born in darkness, but have discovered the light. And then verse six says that they'll come bringing all kinds of gifts from the Lord, including gold and frankincense. In fact, that's a theme that runs throughout the passage. We read repeatedly about the vast amounts of wealth that the nations will bring to Israel and Israel's God. In verses eight and nine, we're told that that wealth will arrive by the shipload. It says, who are these that fly like a cloud, like doves on their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, and ships of Tarshish, uh, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar. There's silver and gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. And then in verse 10, it talks about foreigners building up Jerusalem's walls and kings ministering to them. So even though formerly the nations were the ones who had destroyed Jerusalem, now we, we read about the nations rebuilding the city that they once destroyed. And the reason the nations will do all of this is because they'll be drawn to the God of Israel. Verse six even says that they shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So the nations uh, won't just come as those who are interested in making an alliance with Israel for their own benefit, or even as nominal adherents of Israel's religious practices. Now they'll come as those who have wholeheartedly embraced the God of Israel and whose hearts overflow with the good news of the gospel and the praises of the Lord. And if we look at the larger biblical storyline, uh, we see that this is a very clear fulfillment of what God was planning all along. Uh, we, way back in the book of Genesis, when God was making a covenant with Abraham, he said to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from the very beginning, we see that God intended to use his people, the offspring of Abraham, to be a blessing to the entire world. And here in Isaiah 60, we see a picture of that happening. As we stated in the main idea, you remember, God will be the glory of his people for the blessing 
of the world. And as we read this description about the nations streaming into Israel and worshiping Israel's God, guys, it should be a powerful reminder for us that God has a heart for the nations. And because God has a heart for the nations, we should too. Brothers and sisters, our hearts should ache to see the vision presented here in Isaiah become a reality. I mean, just picture what's being presented here. Picture people from all over the world, all different cultures and languages and ethnicities discovering the salvation that God offers and experiencing the joy that he provides. More than that, imagine people that you know personally who are far from God at this moment and heartbreakingly indifferent to him one day, eagerly seeking him and delighting in him and pursuing his glory in their lives. And does your heart ache to see that? Or are you too wrapped up in your own life and what you've got going on? You know, one of the most precious verses in this passage is verse seven, where God says that all the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. And if you look at this verse carefully and, and you do some studying of the context, I believe that God's not just talking about uh, animals offered as sacrifices, beautifying his house, He's actually talking about people from all the nations making his house beautiful. That's what he means when he says, I will beautify my beautiful house. Uh, kind of like parents uh, might beautify a, a certain area, such as a, a home or an office with pictures of their kids. God beautifies his house with what's most precious to him. Remember that. <laughs> Remember that people are precious to God. Are they precious to you? Do you have a heart for those who are far from God? Now, as we heard in our missions moment about Kenan over there ministering in Colombia to those unreached people groups. But do you yearn to see people from Colombia and from those groups in particular come to know Jesus? I mean, do you yearn to see, as you think about the people in your own life that you know who are far from God, do you yearn to see them come to know Jesus? And are you praying for them to come to him every day? single day. 
Many of you may remember that several months ago, we passed around these, these prayer bookmarkers. I think everyone got one who was here that day. On the front, they have a different thing you can pray for every day of the week. And, uh, but perhaps you uh, remember on the back, it has these 10 blanks. And the reason these blanks are there, the title is People I Would Like to See Saved. So that you can be listing people and praying for these people that you know to come to know Jesus. Um, you don't have to use this card, of course. Although, by the way, if anyone does want one, we do have a stack of them on the back table for the taking. But hopefully, whether you use the card or not, if you're a Christian, you hopefully are praying for people to come to experience what you have experienced in Christ. And hopefully you're also praying for opportunities to have gospel conversations with them. People are precious to God. To the extent that as verse seven says, he beautifies his house with them. Are they precious to you? Then finally, we come to the climax of the chapter in which all of God's people, both the redeemed Israelites and the Gentile converts from around the world, come together to delight in God. Look at verses 19 through 20. The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Now you'll remember that previous verses describe the vast amounts of wealth that would come into Jerusalem from all over the world. They'll become a very wealthy and prosperous people, God predicts. Yet here, we see that God himself will be worth more to them than all the wealth in the world. He himself will be their chief delight. And perhaps you recognize the scene here from what's uh, that's described of God God's people having no need of a sun or of a moon from Revelation 21, 23. In its description of the so-called New Jerusalem, the heavenly city in which God's people will dwell with him for all eternity. <laughs> Revelation 21, 23 uses this very same imagery from Isaiah, drawing it directly from, from the chapter we're looking at today when it states that the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb, referring to Jesus there. What a beautiful picture of God's, or of God being for his people everything that they need. And also I would say everything that they desire. God will be the chief delight of his people. And that's really brought out quite clearly back in Isaiah 60 when it states in verse 19 that your God will be your glory. 
It says, the sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. And of course, that's the language we've adopted in our main idea, right? That God will be the glory of his people for the blessing of the world. Take a moment and think about what it means for God to be your glory. What does that mean? Your God will be your glory. You know, some people look to their looks or their personal appearance as their glory. Others look to their achievements, perhaps their educational achievements or their career-related achievements as their glory. Still others look to their material possessions as their glory. And others look to their family, especially to their children, as their glory. So how can you know if that's you? How do you know what you're looking to as your glory? Just ask yourself this. What is there in your life that if it were taken away from you, you wouldn't even know who you are anymore? What is there in your life that if it were taken away from you, you wouldn't even know who you are anymore? That is your glory. And functionally speaking, that is your God. Yet the Bible here in Isaiah directs us to look not to any of these earthly things as our glory, but instead holds up the ideal of God, the true God, being the glory of his people. And of course, anything less than that is idolatry. So is God your glory this morning. You know, I believe it's pretty common, if not universal, for people to initially come to God in, in their initial conversion to Christianity for what he can give them or do for them. Basically, I think folks generally want to simply escape hell and go to heaven. So they look to Jesus to do that for them. And it's not that affections for God are entirely absent, but they do seem to be you know, rather minimal. I know that was true of me back when I was first saved, and I would imagine is true for most, if not all of you as well. Yet the more you grow as a Christian, the more your affections for God should grow. In fact, I'd even say that that's central to what it means to grow as a Christian. We grow in a number of areas, but I believe chiefly and most centrally in our love for God and our delight in Him. In the words of our main passage, God becomes our glory to a greater and greater degree. So my question for you is, is that happening in your life? 
Is that, I mean, if it's not and you believe yourself to be a Christian, that would be a very big red flag that probably should cause you to re-examine where you stand. Is that process of God becoming your glory to a greater and greater degree happening in your life? Imagine that you became a modern-day Job and that everything you possess and enjoy on this earth was suddenly taken away from you. Would you still be able to count yourself rich beyond all comparison? Can you say with the psalmist what he says in Psalm 87, 7? All my springs are in you. Can you say that to God? All my springs are in you. In other words, you're the source of all my joy. Or as the psalmist says to God in Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And how I pray that that would be true of our church. How I pray that God not just the gifts, but the giver himself. That God would be first and foremost in our thoughts and affections as we go about our day. May how I pray that we would truly believe that, as one writer put it, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I really do pray that for our church. Those, I just gave you a couple items on, that are written down on my prayer list that I pray for you guys very consistently and for myself. So hopefully the main idea of our passage as it's talking about Israel can be true of our church as well. That God would be the glory of us, his people, for the blessing of the world. Yet there is a problem, two problems actually. First, there are two obstacles to, to God being a person's glory in this way. Uh, number one, the Bible teaches that you and I are in our natural condition alienated from God and under his condemnation because of our sin. And then secondly, the Bible teaches that our hearts are also set in opposition to God. Basically, our hearts are pointed in the wrong direction. And there's nothing we can do in our own strength, no matter how hard we try, to get them pointed in the right direction again. And so we need God to rescue us. We need him to rec rescue us from both of those things, both from our state of condemnation and from our own sinful hearts. And the way God has acted decisively to do that is through Jesus. Jesus entered this world as a real human being and lived a perfectly sinless life before he died on a cross. And the reason Jesus died was because someone had to endure the punishment for our sins. God's justice means that he doesn't just sweep our sin under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist anymore. Now, sin 
has to be punished. Yet Jesus endured that punishment in our place through his death on the cross. And after that, the Bible says he resurrected from the dead so that he's now able to save everyone who puts their trust in him to do that. That is the way we experience all of these blessings that we've been talking about. We have to stop trusting in ourselves and in our own efforts to get right with God and instead put our trust in Jesus alone as our only hope of rescue. And it's then and only then that we become a part of God's people and that we experience the glorious realities predicted in Isaiah chapter 60 for ourselves.